Healthcare 360. I'm your host, Scott Burgess. Join me in welcoming my guest as we'll discuss the ins and outs of the healthcare landscape and examine what is really happening inside big healthcare. Today's guest in discussion is with Tatiana Gumerez, an experienced healthcare architect with the Perkins & Will Architecture Firm, whose unique experience in reinventing the future of healthcare by making it more accessible as well as delivering a better overall experience to the healthcare consumer. Tatiana has been in the architectural healthcare arena for the past 20 years and has seen it all, including the current shifts in healthcare trends, moving from the hospital inpatient model to more of an accessible and convenient outpatient retail business model. We'll talk upcoming healthcare trends, what really goes into designing a healthcare facility, what the future of healthcare is aimed to look like, and how Perkins & Will is positioned to adapt to future technological improvements. Glad you're here to join us. All right. In three, two, one. And welcome again to another episode of Healthcare 360. Today, I have a very special guest, uh, Miss Tatiana Gumeras. Some quick insight into Tatiana and who she is and what she's all about is Tatiana is a healthcare architect who I've had the pleasure of working with for many years really since when I first came down here to Florida, I, I'm aging myself a little bit, six to seven years ago. And uh, we've worked on many projects together, some very successful, some very challenging. Uh, so we have a lot of experience, a lot of detail to discuss there, probably another podcast at some point. Presently, right now, Tatiana serves as the planning and strategies consultant for Perkins & Will. She's also a senior associate within the organization as well. She has also worked as the if I'm getting this correct, the AIA Academy for Architecture of Health, you were the serving president, I believe? In 2015. 2015. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself. First of all, thank you so much for having me here and happy birthday. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. I appreciate that. It's very exciting to be talking about healthcare and healthcare architecture. We um, So I'm originally from Brazil. I came to the U.S. over 20 years ago. It was a funny story because it was um, NBBJ in Ohio was working in South America and they decided to, they were trying to get into the Brazilian market and they were having troubles with it. Mm -hmm. And they decided to send a letter to all universities. Mm -hmm. And I applied and one day I got a call saying in two weeks you need to come and intern with us. And here I came to Columbus, Ohio, of all places. <laughs> it was cold there, right? It was cold, very cold. <laughs> I draw a line in the U.S. after that say I'm not moving to those areas anymore. Beautiful, but right. not for me. But um, And I got into their healthcare studio. My dad was a doctor. I always loved medicine, never wanted to practice medicine. And I found my passion with the joint of architecture and medicine, doing healthcare. Then I went to Clemson to get studies into healthcare architecture. And uh, I've been practicing ever since for about 20 years now. Wow. So it's an exciting. I've been part, as you mentioned, of the Academy of Architecture for Health, which is part of DIA. I was in the board for 10 years. I was president in 2015, I believe and nationally, and um, it was a great experience because it really looked more of our profession or we're doing as a whole. And uh, and in general, I really you know I've been very lucky with clients and where I worked with amazing visionary clients who really wanted to push the boundaries and look at the future. So, and that's very exciting because I think medicine is changing so rapidly mm -hmm. that we need to be able to accommodate rapidly to it too as we design our projects. Yeah, speed to market for sure. Yes. Yes. <clears throat> so, thank you for that. We have an interesting topic. We have a very dynamic. We had about a 10-minute conversation before this conversation started about the whole thing. And so, we both looked and said, we need to get started. How have you been? You knew me in my past roles, and it's been now about eight months. What's been going on in the meantime? Anything interesting or? 
You personally? Um, too much. <laughs> it's been. It's very interesting. Isn't that the new status quo? Right? I know it is. It's and I think it's everywhere we look. It seems like the market is booming. Mm-hmm. People are really busy. We're really busy here. There is a lot of different great opportunities out there. I believe a lot of the with all the changes with Affordable Care Act and then you know not knowing who the presidency would be. For many years, I think there was sort of this hold, and suddenly it seems like everything is being released, and we just got to get it, you know, catch up. Right. So it's yeah. been great, but busy. I know you're a Clemson fan. Oh, yes. Uh, so last year, national championship. Uh, so far this year in the polls, it goes back and forth, but who cares? It's a poll. As long as they don't lose. They <laughs> oh, get, they're going to make it. They're going to be in the, the final. They're going to win the ball. <laughs> so they're going to be there. What, what's your prediction? What do you think? We're going to win again. I don't know. Okay. I hope so. <laughs> I am a huge Clemson fan. I'm not necessarily a huge football fan, but I'm a huge Clemson fan. I think they have, and I think in the past few years, they really build an amazing team. They yeah, have an amazing yeah. coach. The culture is great. What he's doing for those kids is incredible. Mm-hmm. So, and, and, and you see it. You see it in the games. You see how they are performing. You see how they work with each other. So it's a, it's a great learning, I think, for everybody. So I really hope they, make it to the finals again yeah last year when i saw the national championship game and i saw what they did to alabama and you know alabama now i'm a and Patriots we love fan. to beat Bama. i know yeah. so when, you, when i think everybody that's sorry <laughs> well what they did <laughs> halftime when they came back on the field they, alabama didn't know what to do they didn't know how to handle that team i, I think i agree with you i think they're going to return i think they're going to take their second title in a row so good for them i hope so, I yeah. hope so. interesting topic coming up today Healthcare is a retail market. How do you want to term it? It's uh, we, we we are seeing a new direction of healthcare, and uh, as we go through this, there's trends, there's stuff that's working in the past, there's stuff that hasn't worked in the past. What are you seeing from your seat with that specific topic? I think that's a very current trap topic, and I think a lot it's bringing a lot of people from a lot of interest from a lot of people. Mm-hmm. We are really. You know, for the past 20, 30 years, we've been having healthcare has been decanting from inpatient to outpatient. Mm-hmm. So that has been a trend and it's, and, and it's incredible that we're still talking about it. But there was, in my opinion, there's been a change more recently with Affordable Care Act yeah. and different insurance aspects that really are triggering more this view of healthcare as retail. And it has a series of aspects connected to it. It has to do with market share, and that's the main reason in the past we were looking at decanting. It has to do with cost because, you know, it's cheaper to build in an outpatient setting than it is to build in a hospital. It has to do with uh, new technologies and procedures that can be done out of the hospital. And then it has to do to a series of factors with reimbursements and, and how people are now consuming healthcare has also changed. And I think that's why... The term retail healthcare becomes so important because it really becomes about consumerism more than anything else. That, that's going to be a key word in this conversation is consumerism. Uh, you mentioned something that it's cheaper to build outside a hospital than inside. What do you think that is? It has to do with a lot of regulations, right? When you build a hospital, you have to build a certain standard of building, not only building, but in terms of uh, your generator has to be more because you have to withstand X amount of days without mm-hmm. any power. Just as an example, right? So your yeah. infrastructure has to really be beefed up. Where in an outpatient setting, that's no, those requirements don't necessarily apply. It may apply just to the surgical department, but not to the overall. So 
that has been one of the main reasons. I even remember, and we're talking about probably, again, dating myself now, almost 20 years ago, mm. when we were doing the first run of the Kaiser Template Hospital. We actually, the Template Hospital had um, the hospital, which was, they ranged from, in the template, 100 to 300 beds. And attached to it, not separate, but attached to it, an ambulatory care center. So you had in the same floor imaging, but part of the imaging was on the ambulatory side. You had the same thing for surgery. And then you had clinics and et cetera. And this was, the thing part of that beginning of thought about decanting, but they were still joined together. But we did it that way because we wanted to separate like urgent care from emergency, you know, and separate people. So what year was that? Oh, that was like 2000. We started designing this in like 2002, and then okay. it's been implemented in over 20 sites, okay. probably the next that decade to come. Yeah. So this model's been around for a while then. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, I think the change now is that what we're seeing, and then from there, if you look at just the healthcare history, we went to do to the urgent cares and primary care centers distributed everywhere, right? Which really was about capturing new markets, right? So now you have a certain institution located in neighborhoods, and you once you go there for your urgent care or you go there for your primary care, most likely your referrals will go into the institution and you end up to the motherhood. Right. But in recent years, that has really taken a, a whole nother spin. We're not anymore looking at just the little things, but we're looking about centers, ambulatory surgical centers from a variety of different sizes and uh, some more robust than others being placed strategically in different markets to capture new markets and to get healthcare closer to where people are. Because there is, again, a lot of things you don't need to do in the hospital anymore. You can do closer to the neighborhood. You are allowed to do it that way. So then you're decanting things out and really reaching the communities much more. In one of the previous podcasts, we talked about which hospital you're going to go to. To go to my local hospital, if it's not that good, versus should I drive an additional 20 minutes to go somewhere else where I know I'm going to get care that I know is going to be more reliable, that has a better brand, that has a better uh, output as far as results. It's interesting that you kind of mix those two together quickly and how you talked about decanting and bringing something closer. And and, and I wanted to add one thing because yeah. I was in a presentation two weeks ago from Kerry <clears throat> Vargas from Advent Health and Mike Woods from Medexcel. And they both mentioned that there is today, under this picture of consumerism, pe people are willing to drive up to 10 minutes to their primary care, urgent care, 20 minutes for imaging, and maybe 30, 40 for surgery. So that's a big change in how far people are going and where they're going, right. based different than where we was 10 years ago. This topic of retail healthcare has been widely researched for decades. Uh, we know that it's proven to work. And in some areas of the country, it's already been tested out and modeled out, and that's their standards. The data models are all showing that there's an urgent need as well as a huge growing opportunity for administrators to kind of reinvent healthcare. What does that look like? The retail of the healthcare, the healthcare Apple store, if you will, uh, what does that look like? What goes into that? So how do you start that process to make sure that at the end of the day, the expectations from the consumer, patient, <laughs> right? And then the administrator are all being met. It, it, I mean, you, you really, you're taking a small box and you're putting it outside the main facility now. And that's a huge undertaking. And I know there's a lot of stress that goes behind that. And there is, there is many models being implemented today. And there is different reasons for the many models. I think one thing to understand, and you hated the consumer, right? Consumerism is driven by a, a few things, but... Um, 
one of the main ones is how our insurance has changed. If you look, we used to all have HMOs or PPOs, right? Mm -hmm. And then it was kind of a loyalty system in a way. Right? We trust our doctor, our doctor indicate you to go to a certain doctor, and then there was a, you know, you kind of entered the chain into the hospital, and there was a quality that you expected based on your doctor point of contact that refers you up, right? And that was how you, you were mostly looking for quality. Not that you're not looking at quality today, but that was, and you trusted your doctor and you'd go through the system. Mm -hmm. Loyalty is gone nowadays because really what people are looking is for, because we are back, now we're in the HSA world. And in the HSA world, it feels, I'm not sure if it's, it may be not right, but it feels like we're paying out of our pocket all the time and a lot more. So we are really now a lot more conscious about our spending in healthcare. And with that, we're asking other things, right? It's not just about, is this the best quality? But it's also about how convenient it is to me, how fast I'm going to get in and out, how much am I going to pay for it? Yeah. Recently, my daughter had to get an MRI and the doctor suggested me two places. One was $500. The other one was $1,000. The quality was the same. You know, location was actually similar to the same. Experience both places were kind of the same. But it's a big price tag difference. Yeah, so it's that, like that's interesting. So two locations, two, two locations different in the same city, similar settings, yeah. totally different costs. So I, of course, end up in the five hundred. And I think, like me, a lot of people are now shopping around, and that's really where consumerism is coming from because we're shopping for cost. Our lives, if you look at our parents' life, our lives are so much busier. We are running around like crazy. We don't want to sit down in a waiting room for two, three hours. So if there's a place that we can get decent care and we can get in and out fast, we're going to be doing that. And that's why we see even apps now coming in for certain <clears> things, right? So there is a lot of that shifted. And I think it started to shift primarily based on the fact that we're looking more at prevention and well-being, but also to the fact that with the HSAs, we're paying a lot more upfront. So make more decisions. We're looking at a realm of things and making decisions that are not only based on what I trust from my doctor anymore. And that really has shifted how... We consume healthcare, right? Healthcare became a transaction that we are consuming now. Yeah. And then under that perspective, then there is a variety of different ways in which institutions are deploying these centers, right? You have centers that can be something very small, like Baptist Health of South Florida has a mammography department inside Macy's. Mm -hmm. That's genius. You know, right. you can, it's type of service that it's an in and out. You don't have to, you know, you don't, you don't, you don't demand other services, so it's in a very convenient location where you, if you have to wait, you can go shopping. Right. <laughs> How convenient that is. <laughs> exactly. Dangerous. <laughs> but it's sort of like it, it, it kind of flows into all those aspects of how, you know, quick in and out, convenient. It's part of my day-to-day -day life. I can do other things as I'm doing that. It's just not something that I need to drive half an hour to do that. Right. I can do, you know, buy a birthday gift I need to buy for this weekend and then get my mammography and then go home. So you have something very small like that. And then up to something like Lennar Medical Center, uh, which it is, you know, 225,000 square feet with everything but beds. You have radiation oncology, infusion, surgery, endoscopy, all imaging clinics. So you have, you have a whole gamma in between the two that now we're dealing. And I think partially is about how do you distribute to be within those circles that I mentioned earlier, the 10 minute, the 20, the 30 minute, the 20 minute closer but also what is those markets able to consume and what do those markets need? One of the things you, you brought up playing this in my head real quick is, well, you're actually you're at a retail store and you can go get a mammography done. It's crazy. You remember the days where you had to plan that out and it was a week, two weeks in advance and you had, we got a clinic, you had to wait for your reports. 
Now you walk in, you walk out, you have the report probably in a day after it gets reviewed by the technician and you have your result and your primary care gets it. And then if you need to follow up consult, you go back to the doctor's office, you get the consult or everything's good and you're done. Well, and I actually, you asked me what was the future, right? Mm -hmm. And I think the future is different. The future is even more. I think we need to, we're going to see more of this retail embedded because we're really trying now to demystify healthcare. Healthcare used to be this island. This yeah. hospital, which was I call it the healthcare black box. Yes, yeah. and usually was surrounded by parking and completely disconnected with the world around it. Yeah, right. And you go there when you're sick, and nobody would go there unless you're giving birth for a happy moment. Everything was like, oh my god, this is it was stressful, it was horrible, and etc. With especially with Affordable Care Act, really make institutions have to look at prevention, health, and wellness whole well-being. Yeah. And now there is a much strong, and I think the generations will look at that because we're going to live longer. We're gonna, we want to live longer, better, right? We're all paying attention to our bodies better. It's shifting a lot of that to now look at a different spectrum. So we're looking now, not just the sick, and we want to demystify that you only go to healthcare for the sick. You go for the healthcare for all of other things. Baptists, again, they have a retail area, so that is up for lease. They have, they do yoga classes for the community. They have a community center where they do nutritional classes. So you're starting to kind of mix the, the health with the sick. It's not just about being sick, but you're also getting health and getting treated. And then you go from there to the next level, right? Which it is technology. Everything is changing. You now in retail, they call the omni channel, which now mm-hmm. you don't go just to a store anymore. It's a series of different channels. It started online and then goes to an app and then goes to the store. Everything is integrated. And Nike actually has just opened a flagship store in New York, which really integrate all these aspects. And I think we're going to go there in healthcare too. We have some issues right now with privacy, which is probably impeding some of that to move as fast. But if you think about it, we already make appointments online. We can already talk to doctors for primary care or urgent care online. Online. Or on your phone through an app. That's what I'm saying, through right? an app. And yeah. I mean online, sorry, I mean I know an app. Samsung Health is one of the leaders in that for having So you probably say, hey, I have this, check and say, maybe you need an MRI, maybe you need an X-ray. Then he probably give you a prescription and I'm assuming you go, I haven't tried it yet. I've been dying to get sick just to try it. <laughs> I've <laughs> asked it's... many people if they've tried it and I haven't found anyone yet who's done it, although they love the idea. I found one. Oh, I have? found one recently, Was yes. it good? They said it was good and okay. was quick and was, was a simple, I think, sore throat or something. So they quickly solved their problem. But it's sort of like, you know, then you're going to go to the healthcare for something. But then mm-hmm. probably you're going to get your results through the app too. Maybe somebody's going to call you or maybe you're just going to read it and was nothing much and you don't even need to talk to someone. One right? of the fascinating things that Samsung's trying to do on that, and not to bring this to mobile technology, but they're trying to use an infrared scanner on the back of the phone to check blood pressure diabetes, a mm-hmm. uh, non-prick blood test. So what they're trying to accomplish, far-reaching, ambitious. I love it. Uh, I hope it works. I really do hope it works because it's going to change the market in better ways and have more accessibility that we're going to need. Looking at the uh, the certificate of need that was lifted, <laughs> it's a big question. It always comes up. I, I've, I don't know how many times I've answered it myself. According to the studies, it's estimated that about 60% of all the spending has been dedicated. Now, I don't know if that number is true or not. The articles that I there were mm-hmm. somewhere between 2014 and 2018. Uh, so those numbers can skew a little bit. But it's about 60% of all the new spending has been dedicated for outpatient services. Do you find that true in your trends? Because I know that architects see the drawing requests and they, they get the examples uh, from the hospital saying, we're looking at these statistics what can you do with it? I think for new buildings, that's true. 
I think what we're also seeing, and that's what I mean, I meant in the beginning that I think we're so crazy busy and there is a boom is because I think there was a lot of retrofitting and expansion of an existing hospitals because they were, nothing happened for too long. Yeah. So now they needed to kind of upgrade and update. But I do believe when you look at in general, what, what is happening with our clients, they are all looking at outpatient and how, what they can decant, how they can get to their, to the population that they serve. And what type of services were taking it out of there? The, the CON is a very good point because, and this is, you know, a personal opinion. Who knows, right? If I predicted a future, I wouldn't be here. I'll be sitting in millions <laughs> in an island. <laughs> right. But it's, uh, I think that we are probably going to see more now small hospitals popping up, not because there is a need for it, but because of just for different institutions to establish themselves in markets that before the CON prevented them to, right? Because the CON was really about controlling market and market needs. Yeah. So I think we're going to go through that. But I also think that after a while, that's going to kind of stop because there isn't, if you look at data and you look at projections, there isn't a huge number of needs for more beds in the state of Florida. The, there is a no, there is a lot of more needs for even with all visits. the influx of all the new people that are moving down to the yes. state. Yeah, still it's still like you look at projected data, and we have the baby boomers who are always starting to hit ages that needs more, mm -hmm. you know, and it's still not necessarily requesting in general that you need a substantial amount of extra beds. You may mm -hmm. need a few more, but not a huge number. So I think we're going to see more small hospitals pop up around. But then I think we're going to go back to the trend of more outpatient because people are going, there is a lot more services that can be done outpatient today. You can actually do, you know, you can do orthopedics today in an outpatient setting. So there is different things happening that before you were not allowed to, and now you are. And the only other catch to that is that I think if you talk to any healthcare provider, reimbursement for outpatient is not 100% the same as inpatient. They still make more profit in the inpatient environment. But they all understand the future is the outpatient environment. So they are moving that way, even though they may not be making the same revenue they would if they were doing it in the hospital. Yeah. That's actually a question I have lined up for you as far as, let's jump there real quick. Mm -hmm. If one of the goals is to help lower costs for the consumer, but their out-of-pocket is still $40 for their copay, for example, how is it really lowering their cost? It's more convenient for the healthcare system because it's, it's, a, it's a cheaper build, stick build process to get that facility up and running. But how is it cheaper for the consumer long term? And I don't know if you know the answer to that. I, I know, know if it's, I it's know the I'm not insurance. sure. And I'm thinking as myself as a consumer. I'm not sure it's cheaper. Yeah. I, I, although I will take it back. I think it is cheaper because like, for example, if you go do an imaging, if you go do it in the hospital or you go do it in an outpatient setting, it's going to be cheaper in the outpatient setting. And I recently experienced that. And it wasn't the MRI example, but, <laughs> but it, um, so I think it is a little bit cheaper because, and that's probably because all your overhead costs are different, right? In a hospital, you have much higher overhead costs than you would have in an outpatient setting. It's not only the capital cost to build, but also how many people, the level of people, uh, hours a day work, the infrastructure that supports that and the support services that support all that. I'm not sure it's going to get extremely cheaper. I don't think the goal, unfortunately, is that. I think the goal really is much more about convenience yeah, and easy access than mm -hmm. it is cost. Yeah. I think the cost is going to, a lot of the cost is also driven by, um, by agreements between insurance and hospitals, right? So we, are, we who live in the insurance world, we are bound to whatever the, that insurance has agreed to pay the hospital, and we're dealing yep. with those numbers. 
it's hard to imagine that all of that is going to change unless the consumers put extremely amount of pressure on that to force that change. My chiropractor tells me, he says, if you need a scan, tell them you don't have insurance for us to see what the cost is. And then compare, compare, you know, and I, I never knew or thought of that whole kind of mindset. I'm like, okay, why would I do that? I go, if we have insurance for a reason, he's like, well, they don't want to lose your business. So they're going to make it affordable for you. Is some of that gets tied into it, you think? Do you well, think, I think that it gets the- tied into the change, right? Because when we were in the PPO, again, the insurance covered 80%, you pay your 20%, you had your copays were very clearly established, 20, mm-hmm. 40, 100, whatever it was, and you knew. Now you were going to a world that you don't know anything. And every time you go in, you're paying $200, $500, 150 It's not 20 or 30 anymore. So it's making you think about it. For sure. And then yeah. I think your chiropractor actually has a very good point. I would, I'll try that next time. <laughs> because I do you think the institutions, they do have a lot more plans to work with the underinsured, right? Because some people cannot pay. Right. So then they make different payment methods and things to work it out. Now, mm-hmm. if it's better than what the insurance negotiated, I guess depends on the insurance. Yeah. I don't know. It's funny that a lot of this conversation has already shifted around insurance as a healthcare architect and what you're seeing. Because obviously those conversations happen when you're in conversations with administration of hospitals. That's an, I'm going to make a point of that. We're going to talk about that again. We're going to come back to that for sure. We're looking at this trend. We, we've confirmed that this number is correct, about 60%. So where do you think in the next 10 years? So the, some of the staff to come and say, okay, so the estimated this trend will continue to grow over 60% for the next 10 years, more and more and more. But you talked about how we're moving towards this trend. You're seeing the numbers. That's all been solidified. But you also talked about how you think it's going to come back to the main facilities. What's the the tug of war there or the seesaw back and forth? I think we're going back to to a system with different levels, right? You're going to go to the outpatient, you know, being your primary care or urgent care like we've been doing now for 20 years outside of the main hospital. Then you're probably going to get a lot of services up to 23 hours a day. And that actually is a margin that has been a lot of discussion about increasing, right? But to do a lot of things outside. Because it's more convenient to you. Usually it's closer to your house. You get the same level of care in most cases. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants to stay in a hospital unless you have to. And that's really where we're going to see the hospital. The, the tertiary hospitals are going to be there for the real sick. So is the type of ICU patients, the one that have really concerned, really difficult surgical with high-risk surgeries. Those are the people that you're going to start seeing moving into the into the main hospital base. Yeah. So you have almost as if you think it's almost, it's this network, right? It's this network that starts little and go big. And depending where you are, you go to a different point of this network system. And that's where I think we're heading. And that's where I think we're going to continue to head. And then the in terms of architecture, because you know, we haven't talked really about architecture. No, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> not yet. We need to understand all these different touch points and then being able to really design for it. And the experiences in each one can be slightly different. Because when you are in a quick come and go for an urgent care, what you want is, you know, the more technology we can do that can expedite my weight, the better. You now, I was even asking the other day, like, you know, why am I not, you know, we all use smart devices now in our wrists. 
why when I come in into a facility, it doesn't pop up directly that they recognize that I came in because my watch was recognizable. And then why didn't a question pop up for me asking if I can share my data from my watch for the past week and I can answer yes if I want to. And suddenly they can get my heart rate, they can get how much exercise I did, how well I slept. So all my basic vitals can be here. Right there. Instead of me having to then go through vitals, go back to the waiting room. So there is some of those processes. And then if there is an issue, maybe they need to actually take real real vitals from you. Mm -hmm. But how is technology going to influence our designs? I think we're just seeing the beginning of all of that. And we're going to have a lot more merge because that's going to be part of your throughput. So to get more throughput, we're going to incorporate more of that. Yeah. I love that comment. Yesterday, if you were reading the news, you probably, or if you saw the news come through about Google, they're looking at acquiring Fitbit. So outside of the Apple Watch, who I think generation three or four of their Apple Watch, they have a built-in EKG. So we're already starting to see that being applied into healthcare or your quote-unquote personal health. Outside of Apple, Fitbit has the most data because they are the the second largest brand. Actually, they were the first largest brand before Apple overtook them just because of the ecosystem of the Apple iOS system. But when Google gets that, you know they're going to amplify it. So I, I see that trend. You're absolutely right. I see that trend going. But, and this is the point you made earlier about, I, and let me back up a little bit. You talked about HIPAA restraints. I personally think that HIPAA restraints and the ability that you cannot share across platforms and different OSs is the number one debilitator from healthcare's moving forward in in a large scale. But I think there's two factors, right? The system, you're completely right. One of the biggest issues is share. Like we have a variety of different softwares or systems that work within the ecosystem of a hospital and they don't talk to each other. And that's one of the biggest problems, right? I think eventually as technology evolves more and the need for that to become more more part of the day-to-day, they're going to have to be able to talk to each other. But then you have the HIPAA, but also HIPAA. If you, how many forms do we sign every time we go see a doctor? Be online, there we sign before we go there, right? Why can't that, to me, that's, I don't know, maybe it's I'm being uh, naive, but to me, it's the same thing. If I get a pop in my phone, my phone or my, or my Apple watch that says, can I share information? It's the same thing as, as signing a form. I'm mm-hmm. saying yes. So I'm, I'm allowing them to share my information online. Right? Yeah. And, and I think there is a perception too. There is a lot of, um, People's perception that because it's online, it's, you know, it's more dangerous to be taken, hacked or whatever. And that's not untrue. But again, this is personal. I'm not an IT person, but I don't think it's any difference from the hospital data service, right? So I think it's, I think as technology evolves, I think we're ultimately going to get there. I just think we have, and that's why we're not there yet, because this, there is a lot of things more that we could be doing. Yeah. And you hit a good point too. And you mentioned about before about diabetes and, and now EKGs. I, a lot of more of those are going to become available, either being a plug and play into your phone or something that is an app in your phone that you can do. Part of the challenge has Even always been Even a standalone unit, they are becoming so small nowadays. Exactly. I mean, you, can, you, can, you have, can carry it in your bag. You can carry it in your bag. So if I'm yeah. diabetic, I, there's maybe something that I can plug into my phone and take my blood and can analyze it into that and then, and then send it to my doctor, right? So... Whatever that is, it's not here yet, the technology for it, but I think people are working on it. So we're going to have a lot more things that is going to be our fingertips at home. 
So that'll facilitate a lot of these conversations that is not maybe happening in a facility, but may happen pre-facility. And it goes back to this idea that we're not going to be just talking, going to a place. It's going to be talking through the app and then going to a place and then going back to the app. It's going to be sort of this interlocked system that everything is going to be involved in what we're designing. So in terms of design, what it, you know, really what impacts is that I think we can't right now predict Right? Because some of these things may happen, some of these things may not happen. You told me you were a future predictor. I said if I was, <laughs> if I'll was. be a billionaire today. <laughs> and I would be here. But uh, I think what we need to do as designers is we really need to think strategically how what we are designing today and building today can morph into something else in the future. Yeah. So provide more flexibility in our designs, make sure things are adaptable. Because there are certain things like you're not going to be doing surgery from an app. right? So there are certain things... But ultimately, you're still going to be going to some place to do it. There's other things that may be coming out. So what may be replacing? So we need to be very nimble. Think about modularity, standards, how much we can do things so things can quickly change and not, you know, and, and evolve as medicine and technology will continue to evolve. That's one thing I'm finding. You mentioned modularity. I'm finding that healthcare administrators, they're later doctors to the whole thing. To the whole game of modularity and what it can do it's it, it's it's doesn't have a huge market share or volume right now it's still in its early infant cell it's kind of like year one of google i use that, that term a lot and i get it uh, but at the same time uh, going into that that realm of modularity i think it's going to help everyone bringing things back into architecture though and how you're designing these outpatient facilities so walk us through that process because when you walk into the doors of these, let's say it's a Med Express, for example, it's beautiful. They have Corian countertops or granite countertops and everything's, you know, teak wood. Everything looks really clean and nice and beautiful. Underlying technology and consideration for flow, oh, yeah. for accessibility. So w- what do you have to go through when you're putting together your plan of action to start at square A to opening the doors? And, and you hit a very good point. You know, I've been doing healthcare design for 20 years, right? So that's really my expertise is healthcare. And healthcare is probably the most complex market sector. Airports get close, but I still think we're so much more complex because we have so many different factors coming in. And when you're talking about hospital, you even have an additional factor, which is life and death, right? Things can, people can die yeah. if you don't plan right. One of our guests said before is that we are, we will ultimately die in a medical facility. I hope not. Yeah. <laughs> I hope we will die at home. But it's yeah. true. And yeah. actually, there is the a higher lot of majority numbers of us that say, once I saw a presentation, and I don't remember the exact number, but it was like 70% of healthcare expenditure happens in the last year of somebody's. So it's kind of crazy when you think about that way. Wow. I don't know. Where did you find that stat? That's interesting. Yeah, it was, it was a presentation and I could never found that number again. I've been trying to look, but I remember, and I wanted the exact number because I remember it was so shocking what the number was. And I, what I'm telling you is not the right number, but yeah. I'm just saying it was something that was like, wow, really? Because we're really trying to live longer, even if you probably shouldn't, right? Wow. And that's what that number showed. As a ripple effect to that real quick, think about the impact to your families at right. that magnitude of a number. Well, and think of the impact of healthcare cost in general, right? If mm-hmm. that's what is taking most of the cost, and healthcare in this country has becoming almost unbearably expensive, and I mean, for the system, for the government, for everyone, how do you mitigate that? Probably targeting that and understanding that better and accept it's the unacceptance that somebody may come at the end of their life. That's really what we're 
fighting and we're fighting that in their last few months. So yeah. is it, I don't know. It's hard to say because I think if it's your loved one, you want to fight, right? right. But, so, uh, but go back to yeah, design. Walk, so walk us through. <laughs> walk back. <laughs> so I think the first thing is that we really need to have some clear discussions at the beginning about what is the strategic plan for the system or the hospital or the institution or the doctor that you're talking to, right? And don't forget branding either. I know branding's a big, really a really big outreach and, and part of the puzzle and the equation there. So I want to talk about how they're using that for branding and bringing that whole thing together. So, but in terms of just the process in itself, going back and then we'll go to branding, mm-hmm. is that I think we need to, we need to truly understand what our client is trying to achieve, right? What is their goals, not just for this facility, but their goals for the next 5, 10, 20 years? Because our buildings are going to be here a lot of times for 30 to 50 years. We need to think about, and we need to understand their strategic plan. Why are they trying to do in this building? And what could they be doing in this building five years from now? Then, you know, a lot of well, a lot of what I do is what is called medical planning. So really, it's all the layouts, it's all the flows, the adjacencies, understanding throughput, understanding how we can, what is the... Where, you know, when you look at a flow map, where do you have waste? How can we make that experience of a patient through the delivery of care better? Nothing is worse than, say, like, you sit in a waiting room, you go to vitals, you come back to the waiting room, you go to talk Mm. to somebody and thing, you go back to the waiting room, and then you go to an exam room. That's an example of an experience that is horrible. Yeah. You don't like it because you feel like you're not moving. Let me add to that. My One of my biggest pet peeves, if I was ever to go to a hospital or an urgent care, is having someone come through the room. And getting asked the same questions two, oh, if not three times, it's like you already answered those. And and you look at the amount of time that's spanned over that. It's like I, I could have been out of here an hour earlier. It's like oh, you wasted my time. And then you start getting frustrated, which then drives up that that displeasure of that experience. And really, that's what it is. Exactly. Yeah. So how can we truly understand what that means? And in some cases, and not all, but for example, if you look at Disney World, right? You go in the go into those the endless lines, the happiest place on earth. earth. <laughs> and I do put a smile on my face every time I cross those gates. But when you go into those endless lines, it's they are very smart because you you are in a room, and then it feels like oh that's the exit right there. And then you go into another room. They're like oh my god another room, and they have entertainment for you in the room. But you are constantly moving, right? You never stop in life for an hour and a half. You're constantly moving room by room. You always think you're closer than in reality you are, but the, you never know where the end really is. So. That that helps you pass the hour, hour and a half. And, you know, believe it or not, there's people who stay four hours in lines in Disney World. Yeah. I don't do it, but there is people who does it. I've done it before. Four hours? I've oh, d- my God. Yeah, I think it was the... Uh, Avatar. Avatar. It yeah, got to be the Avatar. Yeah. yeah. It was... Amazing ride, yeah. but not four hours. is insane. <laughs> but it's sort of like, but you were moving, right? So there is, a, there is a whole design philosophy behind it. And I think as we start designing places, we're also having the same discussions, right? How can you move... Patients, if you cannot use, because sometimes the problem is that you cannot lock an exam room for the whole hour that patient will be there and you're going to be seen by others, you need to do your vitals, you need to talk to this or that. So if you cannot do that, how can you move people along and how is that experience? And I think that's the other factor that is really becoming more evident in healthcare design is about the experience, the experience of patients and their families, but also experience of the staff. You know, how do you make them feel more comfortable? How do you make them feel they're not in a healthcare environment? We look at hospitality. We're now looking at retail. We're looking at workplace sometimes, at different venues and learning from them and applying. Look at waiting rooms. If you do go to Lenar, 
Foundation Medical Center, you're going to see the waiting rooms are completely different. They are not a bus-like station anymore. Right. They have high tops. They have a TV room. They have smaller seatings. They have more, you know, more um, intimate areas. It really is changing. But that also had to do in the back of that. There was a whole study we had to do with them understanding how their physicians saw patients and how often and how long they were with patients. So people were not in the waiting room for two hours. Actually, walk Lenar, it looks like it's empty. And Lenar is full at capacity, but it's because you don't, um, we study. So a doctor may see, I don't know, four patients in 15 minutes. Another one may see two. So if you, if you apply the same general thing to all, you get people in the waiting room. But if you start to truly understand how they're working, schedule and then work with the institution for scheduling to scheduling to be around how they work, you really start expediting the process. So basically architecture, it's more than architecture, right? To be, if we're good healthcare, architects. We're really looking at the architecture and, and the environment we're creating and how we can be pretty and more comfortable and, and better for those patients to really distress them and distress the staff who is getting burned out. Sure. But also that was another all question I had real quick about that one point. We'll go right back into this, but you have all these smaller outpatient facilities. You still have the main hospital there as well. I mean they're not necessarily doubling up on their staff. So a lot of people are going back and forth. So when I was thinking about this question, I was like, okay, I, I bet we're taxing a lot of the same personnel to get to two places, not at, excuse me, not at once, but uh, over a certain amount of time. And I'm like, wow, I mean, that, that has to be a lot. So going back to your design, how much do you take your personal, uh, what you would like to see, your, your personal vision of what healthcare would look like and apply it? And then how much have you seen is the same or congruent from what an administrator is telling you of what they want to see. So when I walk in, I personally like going to urgent cares versus an emergency room. I know it's going to be cleaner. Uh, it looks nicer. People are a little more pleasant. And I get through a little bit faster. I wouldn't say a lot faster, but a little bit faster for sure. How much of that from your own, what you would like to see, is being reciprocated back to you saying, and you're exactly right on, or are we missing the buck here? So if you look at every... Recent facility I have designed and opened, they've been at beyond their expected capacities in the first year. So all of them. I think people are looking for places that are nicer, more pleasant, and they have better service because all of them also, a lot of discussions targeting service, right? Now, in terms of architects, I think what we, you know, when we really understand what we're doing, what we bring to the table is experience, right? We have done several, many different parts of the country. We're seeing different trends. And it's a conversation then with the administrators because not one hospital is the same as other. Not one facility is the same. It's not a copy and paste ever. Right. It's really sort of, it's a conversation. So it's really a collaborative effort between the two sides. We will provide information. They will provide information. We'll talk about it. We'll push sometimes because we believe there is a trend that we should be moving towards. But it has to be ultimately the folks in the administration or the nurses or the doctors are the one who's going to inhabit that place. So I need to design for them. Mm -hmm. I can only provide them more information so they make better informed decisions, but it needs to be their decisions because they're the ones who are going to live in that place, not me. Right. Yeah. With the offloading of these minor services, and I'm just going to kind of put that in a bucket. So minor services, emergency, urgent care, um, you, you know, Primary care. So what are you finding that's happening now inside the main hospital? Are you finding that with those offloading, they're now building more advanced suites or they're moving services around? 
I know, for example, uh, um, let me jar my brain real quick here. So Memorial, they had some pediatric services within Memorial Regional. And they're now going to expand Joe DiMaggio. So they can offload that and they can redeploy some different services and programs within Regional and keep everything adult. And then you have the bridge and then you have Joe DiMaggio, where it has all the pediatric services over there. So what are you finding as the new trends inside the hospitals that they're trying to kind of fill those new open areas for better care. I think we're seeing it's basically what you're saying, right? I think there is there's two things. Like you look, for example, on, on emergency room it used to be offloaded with people. So the idea of urgent care was that there is people who don't need to be in emergency, right? If you just have a flu, you don't need to be in emergency room with somebody who's having a heart attack. So it was sort of more of let's discern the types of care we have and what you need. And mm-hmm. if you need something minor. Go to a minor place closer to you and get service over there. And then if you have, you're having a heart attack or something like that, yes, please come to us and we're going to treat you. So some of that was just sort of um, decompressing areas that were extremely compressed. So you don't have to build more. You're just building them more in a different setting right? to really sort of separate. The other aspect is that we are decanting certain things. So you look at surgery. Some hospitals maybe before has X amount of surgical rooms, and now those are moving moving out because some of it's outpatient, and now we're seeing that it's more effective to do outpatient separate from inpatient because the throughput's different, the staff, how they work is different. It becomes more efficient. So we are keeping in, again, the more sick in the hospital, and then you're seeing renovations of those areas. A lot of times when you see that is because those hospitals were dated, so they need to enlarge the ORs. And now they have the capacity because they can make three into two or whatever may be the case, right? And they need to bring more. We're seeing more and more um, hybrid ORs bringing in, and that yeah. demands more space, more rooms, a lot of different things. That then that those type of decanting is allowing then the hospital to sort of expand in place within what they need. So you see a little bit of both of that. Yeah. Those hybrid rooms, they're, uh, they're a they're doozy, massive. aren't they? Oh, I love them. Yeah. They are my best. Yeah. And I've done probably every type of hybrid on the planet. And I think we're seeing them more and more often. But still, I don't think we are fully using them as a full hybrid yet. I think surgeries are not fully hybrid. I think we have a very small percentage. Yeah. In yeah, of crossover for sure. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the stick on that one point for, for a minute for the, with the hybrid – the coordination effort, and I've spoke about this before, the coordination effort on the multi-partners that the hospital's chosen for that one project spans anywhere from four to six. And the coordination and the efforts behind it, it, it's just completely and utterly massive. So, But the end result is you have this beautiful cross-functional room that can serve a lot of disciplines, which is fantastic for And it goes the to the turf battles and how you manage all of that. Who is going to really, I think one of the key things with hybrids is who's going to really own the room mm-hmm. for the majority of the time. Is it the interventionalist? Is the imaging guy? Is the surgical? Because 80% of the time it's going to be used for one function, not the hybrid function, right? So what is that function? So you can really design for all, but make sure that for one function we can really... Um, discuss more let's go back to and thank you for the quick reminder there about the branding so we built the facility you have all these different thought processes that need to go into the design you have a lot of input from the architectural uh, side of it you have a lot of input from the administrative and when i say architectural side of it there's standards that need to be minimum standards that need to be met administration etc branding that's pure marketing 101 apple store-esque there's branding for yourself as well, as far as Perkins and Will and different institutions that build these. So talk about that a little bit. 
definitely. That's um, and that's very important to our clients too, especially as they are dispersing themselves in many different markets Cause and areas. Because to tie this back in is if we bring it back to the CON repeal, it's about geographic control at this point, yeah. right? And it's and it goes back to branding, right? You want to yeah. be able to identify this is. Baptist or this is Cleveland Clinic or this is, you know, Advent Health. You want to be able to identify who they are. Mm -hmm. So, and, and branding has a variety of gamma. Um, it goes from actually sort of marketing type branding, the logo and how it's distributed through the facility and their informational material and et cetera. And in the building, because you are going to see the building, go to any UM facility, you're going to have the big U there. Right. And that's important. And then from that, you take cues from color sometimes. Because, you know, they may have a very specific color palette that is regarding that branding that you want to somehow bring it into the design. Mm -hmm. And then we are really taking branding and we have a whole branding group in Parkinsonville. We're taking branding to another level, which is embedding branding more into the design in itself. So it's not just, it's not an applied logo that you're applying, but it's how do you design around branding. Yes. And that goes from imagery that you may use or how you can use the logo in different forms in different places. Take, as I mentioned, take cues from colors, palettes to create palettes. So it's really becoming crucial because you want people and more and more because there is so many out there, so many different institutions, so many different names out there. People, uh, if you talk to any of the C-suites, they really want you to enter and know, oh, I'm entering Baptist, where I'm entering Cleveland Clinic. They want you to recognize at the part of entrance where you are. Yeah. So that becomes sort of your visual cue for what your experience in that place is going to be. So how hard is it to, because everything leads back to this one word. So how hard is it to tie branding to the experience? Because everything is an experience. Your phone's an experience. An elevator going up to the 13th floor in Coral Gables is an experience. Everything is an experience. So that's extremely hard to do. And so to be able to capture color palettes and then tie it into a mood. So when I think of or I see that color, I'm like, oh, gosh, that was such a great experience. Because that, that's, it's an emotion. That's what you feel. And that's kind of what you're buying as the consumer portion of this, this new healthcare trend, right? And that's the fun challenge that we're facing now in healthcare, right? It's really about... I think we're finally, in, for years and years, all we look was operations, right? It was about operation, how can we deliver the best care, How what is the most efficient way to deliver care, the functionality, functionality, functionality. And with, and now we're shifting to really, we are still, that is still holding extremely important, don't get me wrong, but we're also adding this whole other layer in a much more stronger point of view than before. It doesn't mean we didn't before, but I think now we can have those discussions about what is the experience like and what is the experience for the patient, for the family visiting, for the staff, why, where are they going to decompress? How are they? It's, and the experience goes, as you said, from many layers, from the moment you enter the facility, moment you come out of the garage and you park your car. That's where it starts. Right. right? Yeah. So how, and sometimes it's that's even a, before that's to your app. a great point too. But it's like, where do I park and how do I get there? So it's wayfinding. Wayfinding is a big deal. And that's how we are using a lot of the branding. It's to help wayfinding. Talk about parking real quick. That's one of the first things now that hospitals are building because if you can't find parking, oh. Convenience. I, yeah. You just, you have nowhere to put your car just to get out the door, just to drop someone off. And if there's not a valet stand by chance, uh, it really makes it very, very hard. I can't compliment Baptist on this. So over at Boca Regional, they are building a brand new parking garage tower. And 
valet has been unbelievable. They have been next level as far as their convenience and making sure that they're making sure that you're getting into the hospital and getting done what you need to get done for your personal health care. And they close off an entire section, but valet, they were overstaffed. They had a direct route. They had people guiding you through where to go. It was awesome. They, they thought it through, all the way through. So, um, And we think about all that in design when we mm-hmm. think about queuing. So a lot of so design starts on master planning, right? On the site planning, how are you going to come in into the car? How am I going to drop off somebody? How long is my queue? Do I have enough space for the valet? How far is the valet going to park? And how far, if I want to park myself, I get there? Then yeah. how do I get from there to the building, right? Whatever entry points. Where are my entry points and how I'm connecting my drop-off being parked or being in a valet to the entry of the building? Yeah. And as you enter the building, what is my first experience at that point of entry? Is it a little door that is coming from a bridge from the parking garage into a corridor that I don't know I'm going? Or is it a nice, a nice, you know, lobby that you can provide a sense of orientation and you can say, okay, this is how I need to move forward. That's where the elevators are, or this is where surgery is, whatever it is, right? So it's your first point of experience. And then it goes into where is my waiting room? Where am I going to wait? How is that interaction? We're seeing like Lenar is doing a phenomenal job with the whole idea of concierge services and using kiosks for your registration because registration process is another process that can be yeah. very daunting. Right? Yeah. And I, I'm hoping the apps in the future will consume all that. I hope that ahead. all of our personal primary care or any kind of specialty uh, certain that we need to see, we can get those forms ahead of time and fill them out. So when we go, we don't have to spend the 10 minutes to fill it out, oh, hand totally. it in, in the process. Oh, it's such it's a waste of time. It's just so much that we can do now ahead. And then, but then you have to wait and then you go to the room. And what it, and all of these are, how do you get there? What that room looks like? Even a plain exam room. It's very important, the design of that. We're dealing with a, a new client now who we are really sort of discussing what is the future of healthcare, just like we're talking today. And one of the points of conversation was a waiting room. And we're saying, like, why do I have to talk to you in an exam table? Right? Because if you look at most of exam rooms, you sit in an exam table and the doctor comes talk to you. Why? Why can't we have a little sort of almost like little living area setting with nice, comfortable chairs, and I can have a conversation with you front to front, and if you need to hear my heart, you can hear my heart with me sitting in a chair. I don't need to be in an exam table. So we can have that in a much more sort of personal setting in a way, intimate yeah. setting. And then when I need to truly examine you for whatever reason, if I need, because a lot of times you don't, mm-hmm. then I'll move you to the exam table and we do that. But to sort of change the whole concept of culture of how some of these things are delivered. So again, to not be so medical from the get-go and create a little bit more, because as we're going to go to this whole idea of apps and online and et cetera, we're distance ourselves, right? So when right. we're going to have those point of interactions, we're going to have, we're going to want a more human interaction at that point of care. So how mm. do we create that? And then how architecture builds around that. So that's how we're talking about how is the chair? How is that correlation? Is it a chair for the doctor? Is it a stool for the doctor? How are we sitting? For, are we sitting face to face? Not across from a table anymore. It's less formal. It becomes more intimate. That's a great example of the experience right there. That's dead on. Having the ability to be comfortable, look eye to eye, and just have a discussion about your personal health care. If you, if you need to get something done or examine real quick, you're still right there. And how do you hide the stuff? Because if you think you have yeah. so much things that are not nice looking, well, and, and when I mean, you see nice wires 
dripping if off the walls. If dripping off the wall oh. or equipment dripping yeah. off the wall, how do you also look at that and try to either hide it? Some you're going to have to have there, especially in an inpatient setting. But in an outpatient setting, maybe you don't. Maybe where you have all the vitals that you have usually where you have your, where you check your ears and throat and et cetera. Maybe it's in a cart and it's hidden in a casework. So yeah. you pull it out when you need it. It does cause anxiety. For it sure. does, yeah. because you, you you feel like, oh my God, I'm here because I'm sick. And yeah, you can get false positives with heart rate and blood pressure. and. So if you look at all that from how we can really try to make when you enter, why doesn't it look like uh, either a small living room or a hotel room or something else that does not cause you that anxiety? And then little by little, you go unfolding all the things. Right? right, yeah, exactly. But that's part of design. That's part of the conversations we need to have with our clients and how we can manage that. And what is realistic? Because there's a point of that that may not be realistic. Now, if you're in an ICU, you're going to need to be hooked up to a lot of things. You know, I'm not going to hide it because you're not going to be pulling. Everything is going to have to be out. So you, you have to manage the, the two ends of the spectrum. So looking at these types of facilities, what's the primary piece of technology that you're looking, well, that you have to work with? Everything. You're looking at everything. Yeah, we're looking because in our, this outpatient facilities, they know there's everything. I mean, MR rooms, they have lead lined. There's a whole construction process behind that. There's a GAN schedule that needs to be followed and a process yeah. procedures. That must be hard, especially in a smaller space. It, it is. I think it's not that it's hard. It's hard from an infrastructure standpoint. I think it's just that we have to be more careful with what we're putting and how we're designing to it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just something to say, let's just draw this room here. This room, there is different demands that we need to work about. And MR particularly because because of how the magnet work and issues we had in the past with things getting pulled into the magnet and causing even somebody died once. So there is a lot of levels of security to reach an MR that we need to design to. Mm-hmm. We just need to make sure that we are very aware of those levels. So there's four levels of security and how they work and how do you you know, you progress through them. But as a patient, you don't want your patient to feel that progression, right? You want them to feel seamless for them. You want them to experience the Disneyland. Exactly. Right? But <laughs> we we need to make sure that as we're designing, we're designing, there is this checks and balances that you're getting checked at every step of the way. So you're, right. you're not bringing something into the MR room that shouldn't be there. Yeah. So it's kind of finding this balance between the two. And probably the MR is the worst case scenario for in terms of uh, concerns. But you look at, uh, you know, any imaging or any surgery in hybrid rooms, you know, you have so much thought that needs to go to from MEP, from structure, from design, from flows and design and how the room will work. And now, and then equipment, because the equipment demands like a cath lab Mm -hmm. or even a hybrid cath lab is even worse. You are probably going to be talking to six different equipment vendors just to coordinate the equipment and make sure everything is talking to each other. So those are the, and this, you know, and those conversations need to happen because otherwise, either when you go built or or even worse, when you go in, things are not going to work, right? Right. So you have to have all those conversations early on. That, again, is the toughest example of a build. Oh, yeah. Because everyone in the beginning has this grand view, and I find that the, architecturally, you have reference files, so you can build this in a 3D animate design pretty close, about 90% accuracy for the most part. And then the vendors have something similar that you can move around and plug and play. I remember in one of the projects we had worked on, and we don't have – no one has x-ray vision, not yet. Yeah. <laughs> right? It would be nice, right? It would be nice. But <laughs> Maybe if, not, I don't But if we had seen the ceiling, existing room, we had to tear it down. We had to – I wouldn't say build it from scratch, but we had to – we were – 
constrained by the existing mm -hmm. and there was certain things that needed to stay. We couldn't just gut the whole thing out because there was different services running from one area of the hospital mm -hmm. to another as a, a pass through, if you will. So we had to come back in and it, if we had x-ray vision or we had a full view, it would have streamlined a lot more. Of the, but, oh, yeah. but you can't, you have, you have to take down certain parts, pieces, you have to go back to mechanical and say, okay, can we do this? Take that information, bring in a structural. And you haven't even started designing yet at that point. And that's, you know, doing remodels, it's way more challenging than actually doing new buildings mm -hmm. because you have existing constraints. And a lot of times we don't know the full extent of constraints. What we always tell our clients is that we need to do as best as we can because the problem is accessibility, a good due diligence to begin with. So we can get a good percentage of what is coming. The challenge with ceilings is that in certain areas, we are, we don't, we're not provided access to completely pull down the entire ceiling. We can pull down some access panels and look up, but you're looking at one portion of the room or the area, but not the entire room and area. Yeah. And so, those interstitial spaces are so tight. You can't see so everything. And they're so tight. The as-builds usually don't reflect all the changes they have done through the years. Right. So until you actually pull the ceiling out, in a lot of cases, we don't know everything. We can take a lot of assumptions with what we see, and due diligence is critical in that. We have to push and we have to do due diligence. They have to vacate the room and give it to us for a few hours so we can pop as much tiles or we can open as much access panels as we can to try to understand the best we can mm -hmm. that. And then with the as-builds, we build the best assumptions possible. But surprises still happen, as we saw in that particular project. Yeah. And yeah. then it's a challenge in construction where we have to very quickly together come to how we're going to change what we have originally proposed to you know to accommodate what we just uncovered and then move forward right so we need to as a group to come together and make the right solution to move forward and, and proceed right right so i know when, before we started the podcast you were saying going through hey what is it exactly you're doing again and one of the details i didn't tell you is part of ihs and my consulting side of my business for healthcare is we're doing exactly that we're putting and tying and fulfilling all those little gaps that each project would kind of incur just because everyone's scope of work ends at a certain point. So we're bringing that all together so there's zero mistakes and there's zero oversights at the end of the That'd day. That'd be awesome. And, and <laughs> it's going to solve a lot of problems at the end of the day. Your role in all this, uh, where would you put it? So I, you're the architect. You're the architect of record. The only thing, I've, I say this a lot, the only thing that matters at the end of the project are the CADs. That's it. Because if someone needs to go back and make an adjustment or an as-built, that's the document they need first. I would say the only thing that matters is the experience that they all are having afterwards. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. But I think the, sure. the as-builds are important just because then they have a record. Of but I, but I think if, if everyone but. contributes like they're supposed to, okay, and... We, we both have seen where doctors are and surgeons are involved in the beginning and then they usually don't come till the end. I think that's a mistake. I think they should be, I think should, they should have quarterly reviews, if you will, <laughs> like a 25%, a 50%, 75, where they're constantly kind of checking in and making sure that's there. There is, um, so let's talk about two things. First, um, on your last comment, um, the challenge with people coming to construction is that construction is in the lack of a better word, deceiving, right? When you go into a room and you have just the studs, no drywall, the room feels huge. When you just put your studs, but you haven't painted anything, the room feels small. 
Right. And then finally, it feels what it should feel, right? So mm. it's ve- for people who are not used to understand that. They can, um, when you go into a construction site in any of those different points, you can get uh, misinterpretation of what things really will be because you're not fully understanding. And then you can trigger changes that may not fully be appropriate. And I think that's the challenge of bringing users into a construction site. To do that, it would have to be very, um, and I think it's totally doable. I think there is something that is valid on that, but it has to have conversations at each point, what it means. So you don't end up changing something that probably a lot of times would be better later because of the state you're in and how you understand what that space is at that point in time. What is really being a lot more effective is two things. I think it's conversation with users as changes happen, because changes will happen. And that's where I think we have to make sure that everybody's fully aware through the process. And I don't think always that is done properly. Fully aware to the process if changes happen that impact the design. And that's, I take us, I would say, is. But in that project that we referred, you handled it perfectly because we couldn't see what was above the ceiling. And that ceiling kind of dictated where certain things could be placed as far as above ceiling support within the interstitial space. And then we just, we, we came met. out, we brought it back to the customer. We said, here are our restrictions, okay. here are our restraints, and are you okay with this? And we went through a full breakdown of what it meant and then what it was going to cause. If there was any turbulence at the end, we identified it. And that's exactly the perfect case, right? Because I think it's our responsibility as architects and as a voice for all of this that we work through for so many months together to go back and say, hey, we encountered this. This is how we're going to solve it. Are you okay with it? Right. Or do you have comments that we need to address now? Mm-hmm. So he needs to have that conversation. I think that's key. So I don't know if it's particularly at certain stages. I think it's when cha- significant changes happened, we need to go back and talk to them about it. Right? Mm-hmm. But now you ask also what I thought was my role in terms of, you know, as an architect, in terms of this whole process of building. I really think our role is kind of two or three. Three, actually. One is truly understanding the client needs. And what I mean truly, because sometimes it's not what they're saying. You need to interpret what they're saying properly. Second is providing the right solution for that particular case, right? It's really designing to what their expectations, their need, and be very transparent in that conversation because the perfect world doesn't exist. You're never going to get 100% your dream. But it's a conversation about what are the acceptable compromises, what are the acceptable changes, what may be better. That's a great sometimes. statement right there. Yeah, acceptable you know, compromises. Yeah. You know, and you need to be transparent because things are going to happen and you need to talk about it. And if we talk, everybody, you need to get buy-in because that's the other thing of a successful, successful project is buy-in from everyone involved and their peers because they need to then go back and defend that project and why we did this this way with sure. their peers. So they yep. really need to have be involved in that process. You and I have been around long enough where five years later, six, why did they do something like that, right? And, and, and you they need, weren't there in that process in the beginning. That was justified at that point. So right? they need to be. So they're aware and right. they are involved and they are part of those decision makings because it shouldn't be me. It should be a collective decision making. And I do believe we have the the visioning or the transformational role as well. It's our job to bring to institutions new ideas, new visions, push them to move to a new era, to have that conversation, right? We are we are here, we are experts in the subject, we're doing things everywhere, and we want to help you succeed, right? We're here to make somebody else succeed. Right. So bringing as much information as we can. So again, decisions are made with properly with all the right information at their hand. 
so they can make the right decisions for them. So from your seat, what's next? Where do you see the next big trends going? What do you see us holding steady, moving forward? What do you got? I think hospitals are going to continue to exist. If we're going to, at some point, we're all going to get sick and we're going to need to go to the true hospital and the true mothership. Right. But I do think that we are trending to this idea of, as we started to discuss a little bit, retail healthcare, and we're going to go a lot more into multi-use healthcare. You know, we're going to see healthcare more embedded into complexes. We're doing right now a 400,000 square foot new hospital for a client I can't mention, mm -hmm. which is actually a bedless hospital, right? It's an ambulatory surgical center, has everything in it, and it's part, it's the anchor for a whole entertainment complex, which is part of a whole urban planning with condos and and uh, wow. other activities. So it's really becoming part of urban planning, right? We're one of the components of this. And I think that's where we're going. Like, if you think, why doesn't Brickell City Center had a healthcare component in them? So mm. I think we're going to see healthcare more embedded that's into day-to-day -day cool. life. Part of a whole living complex yeah wow. it's a whole living it has condos i don't think it has offices but it has a whole inter you know we don't do malls anymore we do entertainment centers right so it has a whole entertainment center and in the end is our facility here's a cool idea i was just thinking of <clears throat> what if you had a uh, a game interaction segment where in the waiting room versus watching the tv there was more interaction to help the time go past I just keep thinking of what you said, which is genius about that Disney line and how fast you get through without even realizing how much time has passed. We have done you know? that for children's. For children's, we have done where they have a big screen, for example, and then if they don't know if they do something in the floor, the screen changes, right? And there is interaction that way, so entertain kids. Yeah. I think um, today with phones, people are really self-entertained. Sure. That is one of the biggest discussions we have within waiting rooms or even patient rooms. How much do you really need a TV? Nowadays, that everybody carries your phone, iPad, whatever it may be. Um, but then you need a lot of plugs, right? You need to make sure you have plenty of plugs for people to charge, good Wi-Fi. So there's other infrastructure things we need to provide so you can use your phone. Or amplifiers, easily. because a lot of times, especially down here in Florida, with the cinder block build and, and the minimum requirements there, it's kind of like a lead-lined room. You just won't get a very strong signal. So Wi-Fi, for sure, but then the bandwidth. Yeah. There's a lot that goes into it. Yeah. And that's becoming more and more important. Most of the hospitals don't have good Wi Fi. Yeah. And I think that's as we design new, at least we're Well, they have 56K, right? Uh, <laughs> maybe they do for their stuff, but not for the public use. Right. But, um, and then we're going to see a lot more, you know, and you know this better than I do, but AI and being in surgical or being like recently, I saw um, a video of this was a there was a blood draw for children so what they did is that they put a little goggles in the children and that was the story in this case was a girl so the story was about a fairy tale and this little fairy would come and and touch her and at the touch her was actually the syringe going in to take your blood out so through the whole experience they were having this story and everything that was happening in the story was you know correlated to something they were doing to take blood out of the child so it's kind of an interesting way to calm down because i'll tell you my kids see needle they scream so it's a different way to use technology to help yeah. in that process. So it goes back to your gaming. Yeah. It's just in a different form. So we may, I think we're going to start to see things like that happening more in healthcare and how that's going to really amplify and work into then to the higher level of surgery. It's a different story, but there is a lot more that we're going to see from AI entering the world we live in and the experiences we have. When we decided design MCVI for Baptist, we were discussing about holograms. Because there is a whole area about this. They have a lot of educational and a lot, they receive a lot of guests. Or could you have a hologram 
of the doctor coming in and receiving you and then going, you know, and going through different spaces, having him doing talks. Um, you know, unfortunately, the technology wasn't here yet, yeah. but we were talking about that. So I think we're going to see that, right? We're going to see more of those type of interactions, which you see in museums. You see in some areas, it just has not fully translated. In That's a very calming understanding of what, can you imagine going through that process and actually having a hologram of someone coming down and walking you through the process and educating somebody at the same time? Star Wars. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. And and having that because it's uh, and it may not be and in a way it's like kind of almost like a win win. You have your doctor talking to you, but he's talking about standard things, right? He's not telling you anything specific. And then uh, he can come later, but you are also saving his time to not have to sit with you for half an hour to explain something basic. Yeah. So it's sort of like uh, trying to manage the two because you're still going to need. I think that's the thing. The biggest danger that we have is that we can go so high tech and lose the touch, right? So how right. do we go high tech but then really provide meaningful touch points, touch yeah. relationship points of the human touch? That so experience, that's the it, it always goes back to that experience it's again. It's all about experience yeah. at the end of the day, everything. I follow a lot what happens in the mobile trends. Mm-hmm. Not so much on laptop, but more because the tablets nowadays, uh, like this tablet in front of me, this is my laptop. I, I don't need a, a traditional laptop anymore. I can do everything that I need to get done. Oh, if you're an architect, you need a very heavy-duty laptop oh, to run yeah. all those files <laughs> I mean, in 3D. N- not just the files, but if you have the <laughs> intimate design. I mean, I remember I had a Surface Pro. I mean, I need, minimum was 16 gigs. Oh, no, just you to, need like it was a our, our, our the majority of our computers, they're becoming bigger and bigger. And yeah. I look and say, well, we should pounds. be going to smaller, not bigger. <laughs> I know. But it's because of so much software. They were running on top of software, and the files are so big. Yeah. Are you still using AutoCAD or using Bluebeam? Revit. No, Revit? we are really um, we are in full Revit full platform. Revit we're yeah. moving into BIN 360, which is a really great way to work through the cloud with our consultants. And we use BIM 364, CleanCube. Yeah. yeah, it's so awesome. It's awesome. It's a great way to interact, to problem solving, to do clash to do a lot of things very early on and through the process very easily, mm-hmm. not as pinpoint specific points in the process. And we, we, we at Parkinson, we would say we probably develop so many softwares in house that run over things. So we are very, um, I would say almost like geeks, right? We really, our design team is highly using different softwares to do different things depending on it being from studying light into the building to actually trying to do a render to act uh, to many different forms so we we have a, a array of different tools that we can um at our disposal to use whenever it seems appropriate yeah that's great so, so we need big computers <laughs> last question for you looking at your past lessons that you learned good bad what would you do again? What would you pull away? And let's tie this into what the trends are moving towards, the experiences that you know as a, a consumer yourself, what you would like to experience, but what people ask you to also do. You have the final word. I don't know what are we do because I think every lesson is a learning lesson and you learn and you're better from it. So, um, but I do think what, what we bring to the table is a collection of experiences and, and knowledge base. So the more experiences you have, good, better, indifferent, they, they will better inform what you're bringing to the table. And then it's all about the research and the expertise and the true understanding of what you're doing to also bring to make it a stronger offer to our clients. Mm-hmm. So they can then take that and expand on with their knowledge and their experiences, right? And then it becomes the sort of together we go somewhere. I think next is really 
we need to continue to reinvent. It's, you know, you mentioned that healthcare takes time to, to take new things. Well, some of the slides we looked at before, I mean, that adoption rate was over a 10-year period. It's very, very slow. It's very slow. Yeah. And, and I would say that architecture can even come behind it, right? Because when you're investing the amount of capital that you are to build things, you tend to be more conservative. So we really need to, I think that's why it's so important for us to truly understand our client needs, but also what we see coming into the future, at least the best that we can see, because we need to design for that. We cannot only design for today. And we need to help our clients the best that we can move on to this next level, you know, or at least be prepared to adopt this next level. And that's kind of, in the future, is going to be more ideas of, Healthcare embedded in retail. The idea of retail healthcare is here. It's not going to go away. Consumerism is here. It's how we're approaching healthcare, and that's not going to change. So we are. That's our future is going to continue to be outpatient, but the inpatient is going to continue to become more and more critical, high risk. So you have the two ends of the spectrum that we have to constantly be dealing with and understanding what belongs in where, and helping uh, and really doing. It's about problem solving at the end of the day it's helping them solve their problems the best way they can yeah what i took from the majority of all this is this technological advance that we are and what we're trying to bring and kind of convince the mind that you're not waiting as much as you were as you're going to a hospital and, and making the experience better is communication oh, totally. sitting down with someone putting your devices aside shoulder to shoulder drawing something out and then making it come to life at the end of the day. That that's what I'm catching with all of this because you there is no way we can capture that experience, deliver that expectation without having yeah. very good relationships, open relationships, open communication and good dialogue at the Complex same time. Right. It's been gosh, an hour and twenty minutes. It goes by fast, doesn't I know. it? It runs. <laughs> it does. So I want to thank you again. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Uh, there was so much we learned. There's so much that you contributed to the show and what you just did, and I'm really, really thankful. And I hope that everyone who's listened to this can really appreciate uh, what goes into their next urgent care, If and hopefully they don't, but if they have to go there and know that there's someone like you and a team of people like yourself who are doing good and for their, all for the right reasons, for, the, for their benefits. I want to thank you. Thank you so much yeah. for having me here. It was really a pleasure. This uh, is a fun conversation. Yeah, it's and easy. Hopefully, it's it? inform- It's easy, but yeah. hopefully, it's informative too. That's yeah, for sure. Goal. So, everyone, this is Healthcare 360. We're going out. Take care. See you now. I wanted to take a minute to thank everyone for joining us today on Healthcare 360. It was my honor to have on the show Ms. Tatiana Gamaras to talk about her unique experience as a leader in the business of healthcare architecture, as well as her and Perkins and Will's unique approach to changing the healthcare landscape. If you like Healthcare 360 and enjoyed the conversation, please share this podcast and give us a review. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or anywhere you enjoy listening. If you want the conversation to continue, you can find us on Twitter at hc360podcast or healthcareturnkey.com. Thanks again. This is Scott Burgess for Healthcare 360. See you next time.